Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Tineski, and today I spoke with John Renard, the founder and executive director of Who Lives. On a trip to Africa in 2010, John was shocked to see how little access to clean water many villages he visited had, so he decided to do something about that. Working with college engineering students, he invented the village drill, which is a low-cost, hand-operated drill that has enabled numerous African villages to have clean, safe water. In the last 13 years, Who Lives has helped bring clean water to over 12 million people in 37 countries. Also, working with local police, Who Lives has helped fund efforts to enforce laws prohibiting female genital mutilation and girls essentially being sold into slavery as child brides. Overall, Who Lives has made a tremendous impact around the world, and I've really enjoyed learning about its amazing work. Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I'm speaking with John Renard, the founder and executive director of Who Lives. John, thank you for coming on the podcast. Brooke, it's it's my pleasure. Um, I, I love being here and, and can't wait to chat with you. So to start, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to start Who Lives? Yeah, it came about in, in a little bit of an, an unusual way. My son had been doing some humanitarian and, and missionary work for a couple of years in um, in like Kenya, Tanzania, over in Africa. And he, he did that for a couple of years. He came home. And about six months later, I said, let's take the family back over there. I'd never been to Africa um, and just kind of see what you were doing. I mean, he just had these incredible stories about the people and experiences. So I took all my kids um, and my mom and we all went over there and and it, it was truly enchanting. I mean, anybody listening, if you haven't been to Africa, put it on your bucket list because it really is as enchanting as they as they say it is. And the people are, are fantastic and wonderful. The experiences we had were incredible. But there were still some things that that really took me aback. And probably the biggest thing was. Everywhere we went, now again, we weren't in the tourist locations. We were kind of where you would imagine, you know, uh, humanitarian aid workers and missionaries might be kind of out in the rural areas. And, um, but everywhere we went, we were, we were seeing, you know, and primarily women and girls carrying these buckets on their head. And, and I heard that they still did that, but I'll be honest with you, it, it floored me to, to realize that nearly everybody's life in in most of Africa revolves around getting water every day. And this burden typically falls on, on young girls and, and women. And, it, and I guess, and one thing would be if it was clean water that they were getting, but the water that they were fetching is, I mean, you wouldn't let your dog, you know, swim in it or drink it. it it's just that nasty. And and yet that's the only water that was available for, you know, for the greatest portion of the population in this continent. And so on my flight home, I had very mixed emotions, but, but one of them was just kind of anger. I was kind of mad that here we were in, in 2010. And like you say, our brothers and sisters were still living like this and they were still burdened 
with collecting this uh, this nasty water for their survival. Because again, water, I mean, you can live, what, 40 days without food, right? But you can't go four days without water. And so it really was something that affected me. And, and I just said, I, I have to do something. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I, I had no idea what to do. I, this was brand new, you know, and, and but I just, um, you know, I just kind of put my head down and, and, um, and, and started Googling, you know, you know, how to start a nonprofit, you know, and, and filled out some paperwork and, and, and some other things. And, and on this trip home, I, I, that's where I kind of came up with the name of who lives and the, and the who is the, is an acronym for water, health and opportunity. Because it, it just dawned on me, it's like, man, if we could find a way to solve the water crisis, then almost by default, we fix at least half of the healthcare problems because, well, quite frankly, half of the healthcare problems are caused by dirty water. And again, if, if we had the clean water and we had, um, you know, good health, then of course, opportunity becomes uh, our friend. You know, the, the girls have opportunity to study and go to school. Um, the wasted hours of these women fetching water could be utilized to do, you know, even some simple uh, farming or or taking some extra time to um, to educate their children or even to create a, a small industry, whether they were, you know, m- you know, making, um, you know, whatever, you know, they needed for their area. Um, so so that became Who Lives? Water, Health and Opportunity. And so we've just been kind of focused on that for for about 13 years now it's it it's gone by fast but it's uh yeah there we are yeah and you mentioned obviously the water crisis is a huge part of your work but before we get into some of the more specifics of your programs i'd love to hear kind of what your mission is yeah so our 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 mission has adjusted a, um a little bit in the beginning my philosophy has always been how do we get the clean water to the masses. And, and my approach has always been, what has everybody else been doing and why is it not working? Um, and so part of my philosophy has always been, you have to be innovative. You, you have to find something that nobody else is doing because, you know, if somebody else had already thought about it, it already be solved. So it became pretty clear that we had to do something unique and on the on the water side of it, a couple of things kind of popped up. One was, as we were traveling more in the rural areas, we came to realize that like 70% of the population live off of improved roads. So even if you had all the money in the world, those big drilling trucks couldn't even drive to where like 70% of the population lives. And so there has to be another solution, a more mobile solution. And it was in in having these thoughts that quite literally in, in the middle of the night, this idea for what we now call the village drill came to me. And um, and the, the thought was so strong, it kind of woke me up. And I went out to my table and I drew out kind of what I could remember. And not even being 100% sure what I was, you know, what I was drawing out. Uh, I, I knew it, it had something to do with, with drilling and, and drilling for clean water. And so, so that was a very, very, obviously a very unique 
situation for me. But then the next day I had an equally almost bizarre situation where the engineering department of the local university where I, where I live actually gave me a call asking me if I have a project for them to work on. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, well, you know, I've had this idea for this, you know, human powered drill. I didn't dare tell them that the idea came to me, you know, the night before. <laughs> and, um, but I kind of explained the concept that, you know, we needed something that was more portable, that was human powered, that couldn't break down. And anyways, they got, they got intrigued and, and they accepted me into their, uh, with, you know, with their, their program there. And so I was one of like 32 other projects. And so there's, you know, so, and, and each project is assigned like three uh, graduating seniors, you know, in this case from the engineering department and other universities have this program, capsule program as well. But then we, we worked on this idea for, for seven months and by the end of the of the, the the time that we had for the school year, uh, we had created again what is now called uh, the village drill, and that drill is now in forty countries worldwide. It mm-hmm. has drilled um, over um, over uh, thirteen thousand wells worldwide. So we're finishing three or four wells a day every day somewhere around the world, and that has brought clean water to probably 12, 12 and a half million people uh, over the, the last 10 years. And so, um, again, just from this this simple solution, um, some really great things have, you know, have have come about. And so uh, so that's kind of, you know, how it started and, and, and why we were why we have been so focused on on water, especially in the early years. Yeah, and I'd love if you could give us sort of a brief overview of how the drill works, maybe for someone who doesn't have a huge background and stuff like that. Oh, you bet, you bet. Okay, so um, imagine if you will. <laughs> um, I think we've all seen the game show Wheel of Fortune. So, so and imagine the wheel, the the wheel that they spin and spins around. So our drill has uh, has a wheel just like that, and it's usually spun by four individuals, and they spin it in unison. And in the middle of of that wheel, and the wheel sits about chest high, just below chest high, that um, it has what's called drill string going down the middle of this wheel. And so as you spin the wheel, the drill string. Uh, is connected to the drill bit at the bottom. And, and so that drill bit is spinning and cutting into the ground. And um, so as you keep on spinning, the drill is, is drilling into the earth. And we use um, this, uh, this pump mechanism to, to pull the cuttings out of the hole. And, um, and so as we're, as we're drilling, some things kind of, you know, became, um, new for me you know like i mentioned before i had no idea how to drill a well before Mm. this idea came to me i lived in southern california my water came out of a tap i'd never seen a well being drilled so this was all new to me as well as it might be sounding new to you but one thing that i learned was when you're actually drilling through soil you're actually not pushing down on the drill bit you're actually slightly pulling up on the drill bit and um and for us that are older, uh, the way I explain it 
is the old-fashioned pencil sharpener. So the old-fashioned pencil sharpeners that we had back in the 70s and, and 80s where you put the pencil in and, and you, you rotate the handle and, and that would sharpen your pencil. But if you pushed on your pencil when you were doing that, the pencil would just get jammed up, right? Mm-hmm. And But if you just kind of put the pencil in there and you, and you spun the handle, then it would gently pull the pencil in and it would, it would cut this perfect point. And that's what drilling is like, is if you push down on the drill string and the drill bit in the soft soil, it's just going to get stuck. And so, again, what you're actually doing is holding it up slightly, and that's why we're able to spin the drill so easily. And and weirdly enough, just with four humans kind of spinning it at a very natural pace, it spins at about 34 revolutions per minute, which ironically is about where the big drill rigs are also <laughs> set to, uh, to spin. But, of course, the huge advantage is that we can we can disassemble our village drill put it in a pickup truck we can put it on a donkey cart and literally get it to where people live and and that's a big deal because uh again as we mentioned 70% of the population live off of improved roads and so even if you had all the money in the world these big trucks can't get to where the vast majority of the people live because they live on a walking path or a or a very abused road but the village drill can get there. You can even carry it in. We actually, it was so fun. We actually put it in a canoe in the Congo and paddled for three days up to the Congonese River to a location where they have no cars at all. It's only it's only available by, well, typically by canoe, but uh, you know, obviously by boat as well. But uh, we brought it up there in, in canoes and in this community that was dying because they had this terrible um groundwater we got down into the aquifer and now they I think they have 40 or 50 wells that's that's serving the whole entire population the uh, mortality uh for the young children has gone almost down to to negligible none of them are dying of of these dirty water diseases all because of their transportability and the strength of this village drill so it's been very very effective uh again yeah. w- you know worldwide very cool. And I know something else really interesting, I think, is that I know that Who Lives is constantly focused on creating opportunities for villages it serves as opposed to dependency. So can you tell us a little bit more yeah, about this? I can. As important as I think the village drill is in solving a, a lot of the, the these issues, especially clean water issues, almost a, you know, a bigger invention, I could almost say, or almost a bigger deal is the fact that we realized very early on the difference between the attitudes of people who literally paid for and owned their wells and those communities that were given a well. And sometimes here in the U.S., this is a hard concept for us to imagine because a lot of times, you know, if if somebody were to give us a well, for the most part, I think we would take care of it and and try to, to keep it running and keep it serving. But in a lot of these developing countries, the idea of ownership is huge in the sense that if you don't own it, you don't touch it. It's not yours. And it's it's somebody else's problem, somebody else's issue. It's not laziness, but it's just like, again, um, if, you know, if an NGO, a nonprofit, you know, donated that well and it breaks and that nonprofit should come back and fix it. And, and that is a bigger mindset than well, let me go try to fix it myself. And so in Africa, 
the UN came out with statistics that said that nearly 85% of all the wells that had been installed, you know, on the continent were now derelict, 85%. And again, my natural curiosity is like, why is that? And it always came back to this ownership. And so when we've designed a program that makes owning the village makes it it's so easy for the village to own their own well. And when they do, it's just amazing um, how well they keep it up. They always say that, you know, um, with a drill, with a well that they own, the day it breaks is the day it gets fixed. And which, which again, typically is, is not the case in, in most of these developing countries. And so we have, we have created a loan program where each family pays about $2 a month for 10 months. And then once they've done that collectively, that at, you know, a typical uh, village might have, let's say, two, um, uh, 200 families. So that's $4,000. And that's enough to pay the local drill team to drill that well and make a little profit. And this is all done by them. We're, we're sitting on the sidelines kind of watching and cheerleading and, yeah. and, and interjecting when we can. But this is really their project. They're working with a uh, and in this case, in Africa, you know, the, the you know, an African group owns the drill. They're going to a, a village um, and they're negotiating with them. They come up to a price and and then we'll step in and give an interest free loan to that village. And, and everyone says, well, they're, they're too poor. And they're not. They're not. Um, the average adult working, you know, any kind of a labor job makes six to eight dollars a day. So when you times that out and you're looking at $2 a month for water, it's very, very affordable. But more importantly, it builds character. It builds self-confidence and, and self-sustainability and all these positive things. And as opposed to saying, well, I know you can't afford this. I know you guys are suffering. I know you guys are, are this, that, and the other. So we're just going to give this to you. But again, when you do that, you're, you're sending the wrong message uh, and an in, inaccurate message. And again, you're actually creating more dependency by doing that than, than giving them this opportunity to, um, you know, to pay for it themselves. And then, of course, we show them how to make money with the new found water. Clean water is an amazing, amazing tool, more than just for humans to drink. Um, some really interesting, um, you know, side bits. Chickens who drink dirty water will lay three to four eggs a week. Chickens who drink clean water will lay six to seven eggs per week. So that economic advantage is is, is incredible. Crops, there's many crops where if you add 10% more water than, than what you normally get with rainwater, will give you nearly a 50% higher yield. Uh, you know, tomatoes, uh, by adding 15% more water, will give you like a 30% higher yield of tomatoes. So that's additional crop that you either don't have to buy, or if it's an abundance, you can actually sell. So there's money that you can make. And then, of course, there's the 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 savings, uh, the health savings pr primarily. If you're not getting malaria because you're not walking down to the swamps and getting stung by these mosquitoes, then you're saving money on on medication, on missed days at work. And unfortunately, the big one is a lot of these countries have um, rituals that when somebody passes away, you have to throw away a funeral. 
but the cost of those funerals can literally cost almost a year's salary to bury your young child. And, and to see that burden fall on people is just heart-wrenching. And so the fact that they have clean water and their children aren't dying, as weird as it sounds, is a huge expense that they're not having to uh, to pay. So however you look at it, they're either saving money and or making money um, with this with this process that we bring to them. You have so many interesting projects, of course. The next one I also want to talk about is I know you're working to help with girls and women in Africa in terms of health and such. So what are some of right. the difficulties that they encounter and what what does Who Lives do to help them? Yeah. So this past year, we've always been involved with, you know, making sure that all the health clinics have clean water because it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to build a, a you know, a, a clinic and then have you know, dirty water to wash the wounds or, or clean before a, uh, you know, a surgery or something. But beyond that, this last year, and it was actually about two years ago now that, um, that one of our, um, groups got a call to put a well in at what was termed a rescue center. And so we, we approved everything and, and they were going to pay, um, when it makes sense, we will subsidize a lot of these wells. So again, if it's going to a community, they're probably going to pay the full price. But if it's going to an orphanage or in this case, a rescue center, or in some cases, even a school, we'll, we'll subsidize it. As far as they know, they're they're paying virtually the full price for it, but, but, but they're getting a reduced price. So we, we're doing one of these subsidies. They were still paying for quite a bit of the well. Um, and, and we were helping them create income in order to, pay for the wells. It was, it was a very cool idea. Um, but, but what I didn't know was what were they being rescued from? (laughs) And so when I found out they were being rescued from what's termed FGM, which stands for the female genital mutilation. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they go through this tradition, this horrible, horrible tradition in preparation to be sold as a child bride. Now, I hate even using that term because, yes, they're children, but in no way, shape, or form are they a bride. They are typically from the ages of 8 to 14, and they quite honestly are being sold to these typically old men, 60, 70-year-old men, as a number 7, 12, 15th wife. And again, they're not wives. They are they're slaves. They really are. Um, during the day, they're labor slaves. They have to clean and, and fetch water and cook and, and do all those things. And then at night, they, they're the property of these men who bought them. And when I was realizing this, I, I just was, again, dumbfounded that who, who we were. In this case, we were 20, uh, 2022, and, and these girls were, were going through this. And, and, I said, we got to find a way to to end this thing. And so we took kind of the same approach of figuring out, I mean, there's 15 other or 12 other nationally or internationally known NGOs that are in this area fighting, quote unquote, this horrible FGM and, and child bride issue. But yet it's existed for millennia and nothing, they were showing such small percentages of improvement that it was it was very very difficult to 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 just you know imagine that it's still going on and so 
long story, long story short. Oh, look at this. I have my, my little granddaughter that just came in. I, I'm, I know you're not on video, but can you say hi to everybody? Hey. Say hi. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> say bye-bye. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that interruption. But Well, I'm not sorry. That was my granddaughter. So I was happy that she, she, um, uh, she tweaked the lock to get in. So that's, that's okay. Uh, so let me regress a little bit. Yeah. So we found out we found out about um, the FGM and what was going on, and, um, and and again, we didn't want to do whatever else was doing because obviously it has failed miserably. Uh, and so we took a, a more a more holistic approach, and quite literally, we went to the police. The first thing I did was go to the police and said, "What can we do? We know this is illegal. This is not a legal practice. It is le illegal." What can we do to help you enforce the laws that are there? And the answer was mind-boggling. So I'm talking to the chief of police over the whole entire area, and he says, you know what? The one thing that we need is fuel for our cars. And I thought I misunderstood what he said. I said, I said, you need like gasoline, fuel? He says, he says, yeah. And he says that we have, you know, most of the precincts have like five cars, but we have a fuel allotment and the fuel allotment only allows us to go 30 miles a day per car, which is 15 miles out and 15 miles back. So people know if they're 30 miles away, 40, 50 miles away, they know that we can't go and investigate those, those crimes. Cause again, if they had to drive 40 miles out, 40 miles back, then they'd have to park that car for four or five days. And so, so we came up with an ingenious program where we would pay for their fuel if they were going on one of these issues. If it was a crime against a child or a crime against women, then, then we would pay for their fuel. And all they had to do is show their reports to either the magistrate, the judicial system, and or the, uh, the child welfare division. And, and so... Uh, and then all those things had to match up to make sure they weren't, you know, paying it for other, you know, using the fuel for their personal cards or things of that nature. And that program changed everything um, where there was never any arrest or virtually no arrest for, the, you know, for the last or however long. This year, we had um, nearly 60 arrests during this last cutting season. I know cutting season sounds weird, but they they cut twice a year. Once during what we would call our Christmas break and once during it's coming up is during uh, what we would call our summer break in August. And um, and so anyways, for the first time, we had over 60 arrests. And so far, we have 100 um, percent conviction rate. We've convicted 30 of them. The prison sentences range from a low of, of three years to a high of so far as 15 years for the crimes against these against these girls. And um, and that has really shook uh, these communities. Mm -hmm. And and we don't I mean, we have rescued over 2000 girls, um, you know, during this 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 rescue period. Uh, what we don't know, because, you know, how do you figure it out? But how many countless other lives that we say because the people were too scared to uh, to commit these crimes. And so that has been um, a wonderful thing to report on and, and to show that sometimes you just got to use common sense. It, it's not this committee or the committee. I, I, I'm going to share this with you and, it, and it's, it's mind boggling. 
but the year before we got there, so this is 2021, all these NGOs and these businesses and the government got together and they went to these people who were perpetrating these crimes and they said, well, what can we do so you stop cutting these girls? You stop breaking the law. You stop with this ridiculous tradition. And the elders, being as bright as they are, they say, well, give us $5 million and 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 we'll go to our gods, in quotes, and um, and we'll see if it's okay to stop the cutting. And so they did. These NGOs, these large international NGOs, some of the government organizations and and other people, they paid this ransom to this to these terrorists. And in 2021, there wasn't a lot of cutting. What they didn't realize is that most of the cuttings are happening on even years. So it's going to be a low cut year anyways. And then all of a sudden comes 2022, and the same group says, well, we've gone back to the forest and we've said our prayers, and and our gods want us to resume the cutting. This is, I mean, my mind is like, you guys fell for that? (laughs) And it's like, it was unbelievable. My thinking is just the opposite. Mine is, what can we take away from these perpetrators that they really value? And so so that's the next part of the program that I'm working on right now. We have a capital campaign. If, if people want to help us um, finance this, it, it's going to be great. But what I have found out, these men who are perpetrating these crimes, a lot of them aren't even afraid of jail, which was, I don't know if it was surprising or not, but it's like, uh, you know, a lot of times a rapist doesn't think about going to jail. He thinks about the rape, right? But in this case, what I found was the one thing that they that they are petrified of losing is their land, and so we've gone to to the vice president of Kenya and to his office and to the um, to the the law schools, and we are um, and, and and again the legislation is already in our is already in our favor. It just hasn't been used in this way. But we're going after these men who are perpetrating these crimes, and in some cases, women, because you know there are grandmothers who say, "Hey, I went through this. It's, it's just your rite of passage. You need to go through this." Uh, the cutters are typically women, so there, there are women involved as as well. But what we're able to do is we are 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 suing these men for their property, so we're taking away their property, and. And the the I don't know if it's irony, but but the the unexpected reward from this is when we are going just after the men and saying we're going to put you in jail, the adult males of the family really didn't care because if dad went to jail, guess who took over all the land and all the privileges were the younger sons, right? But now if we go after the land, now these boys don't have anything to inherit. And so now the boys are stepping up saying, no, no, Papa, no, 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 don't. Yeah, let's not, let's not, they call it circumcision. Let's not circumcise. Let's not sell because the boys didn't want to lose their inheritance. So this is the ingenious of, of what Who Lives has done. And and we have gone in there and had, we're not done. It, 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 there's there, the, the, Something like this does not go, does not end in a weekend. Uh, but we are fighting like crazy. We are right now, we are rebuilding the children's courthouse. And the children's courthouse enables a child 
to testify in court, but not be right in front of their accusers. Because again, in many cases, it's their 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 mother, their father, their uncle, their grandmother that they're testifying against. And these, again, think about it, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls who don't know the outcome and may have to return to these locations. And so they are scared unbelievably. And so, but if we can give them a safe place to testify, and they do it through short circuit TV, um, then then it just makes all the difference in the world. And then we also have a fund that that helps pay for their transportation there. It helps pay for the education if the parents go away. Yeah, they, they get their they get their education, things of that nature. So it's been a, a very very successful program. But we're still trying to raise some funds to to finish off that courthouse, and so. Uh, but so that's the, the other thing that we're into right now that's been just um, heart wrenching and heart satisfying all at the, yeah. all at the same time to see the success that we've had. Clearly, you're doing so many different, really interesting things. So of course, I just want to ask you, how can those who want to best get involved? Oh, thank you. Yeah, if this has touched your heart in any way, we we really need you know we need people. Um, we're a, we're a small group, but we have a huge impact just to give people a sense of, even, let's go back to our, the water side. We have put in more water points every year than charities that are 100 times our size. There's two big gorillas in this industry and, and our little um, organization, wholives.org, has actually put in more water points than the two largest water charities that that are in, are in existence. The same thing goes with with the, the work with these these women because we approach things so much differently, and we and we look at really unique ways to solve these problems. So yeah, if if what we talked about today, if it if it touches people's heart, we we really do need the um, uh, the help. We're a we're a high impact, but a re- relatively small. Um, nonprofit and NGO, and and it it you know there's costs involved in what we do, especially when we want to uh, bring the girls down to testify. We have to house them and feed them. If their parents go away, we have to educate them. And and again, in rebuilding this courthouse that we were talking about, um, that's about a fifty thousand dollar project to rebuild the courthouse and also to create the the funds for the girls to uh, c- to continue the education even if their parents get uh, put away for this awful act of FGM and so yeah if they if they want to uh, to help us out please go to our website it's really really easy it's just who lives dot org who lives dot org w h o l i v as in victor e s dot o r g they can email me it's really simple my first name john j o h n at who lives.org if they have any any questions. And we also do these tremendous visits over there. We, we do about three visits a year where we'll bring friends and uh, and people who have sponsored us or who have interest in what we're doing. And it's such a unique experience. We don't go over there to teach them all about our Western ways. We actually go over there to learn from them because there's so much to learn from 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 these people who have you know, materialistically have virtually nothing, and yet they they live such 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 happy and generous lives, and and 
we learn how strong the human spirit really is. I mean, these are our brothers and sisters. We are the same, you know, um, species. And, and, um, and it's sometimes it's mind boggling. You know, the battery goes out on our cell phone and we think our world has come to an end and it just puts things in perspective. Um, there, there's, there's no, you know, we, we see no problem with wealth and, and with, with capitalism and, and things of that nature. But where we see the deficiency is in, um, we don't think enough about ourselves. We don't think that we can handle these incredibly uh, difficult situations and taking a trip over there with us. And you learn how strong we really can be when those things happen to us. And maybe there's a, a passing in the family that's unexpected. We, um, you learn that the human, that, you know, that the human spirit can handle it and you will get past these, um, uh, you know, these situations. So again, it's a wonderful opportunity to meet these people and interact with them and have fun with them, make new friends. And of course, we're going to go on a safari because you just, there's no way you go to Africa and not come nose to nose with an elephant or, or see a, a lion, um, going and, and, and capturing his dinner. So, uh, we do that as um, as well on these trips. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to chat with them and with anybody who has interest in what we're doing. And, and again, I just want to thank you, um, Brooke, for for this opportunity to chat with your audience. It's a it's a real pleasure. Great. Well, thank you for coming on. I I definitely learned a lot. I think it's really interesting, and I definitely hope other people get involved. Great. Great.